Good evening. I want to thank everybody for your attendance here this evening. It's been a wonderful day. I was uh, blessed this morning to get to hear bro uh, Brother Bledy and his sermon. I love getting to hear good preaching, and that was uh, a privilege to be here and to hear him this morning. Good to, good to have them in town. Um, tonight, we're going to have a lesson that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, this is a chapter that... Uh, in many ways is fascinating to me, uh, just all the way through it, whether it's the way that Paul is using and interpreting the story of Israel and applying it to the situation of the church at Corinth. By the way, you couldn't find really two more distinct groups of people that you could imagine. The, the church at Corinth, a predominantly Gentile, mostly previously pagan group, and the children of Israel who had just received the law of Moses on Mount Sinai coming out of Egyptian slavery. It's like they have different stories, different backgrounds, different histories, and yet Paul is able to overlap their stories so that one can learn from the other, and so that one could, could see themselves in the other. They could see themselves as the children of Israel walking through the wilderness, and all of the temptations that they were facing in the wilderness they were able to resonate with the current situation at Corinth. And Paul's able to use that in order to teach and to encourage. I love the way that he uses the Old Testament. I love some of the things that he goes on to say later in the chapter. We won't get into a lot of them, but some of the, the ideas he has about idols and uh, pagan gods and demons. Like, when you start getting into what he's saying, there's some really fascinating ideas pop up that I don't know that we always uh, factor into our thinking about idolatry. Paul seems to think that, that idols are not just a way of contacting nothing. It's not like you're just wasting your breath. You actually are worshiping and honoring spiritual beings. You're just worshiping and honoring demons that lie behind the idols. It's like an idol isn't necessarily nothing to Paul. It's, it's nothing that has been commandeered by a satanic spirit uh, or by some demon. He gets into some interesting things as you go through that, that, are, that are just fascinating to ponder. But what we're going to look at is the first, uh, the first probably 14 verses or so of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, one, I, I, think that, I think that it's very practical to understand that even though we are not the children of Israel in the wilderness, and even though we're not the ancient church in Corinth, we are going to be faced with some of these very same dilemmas, with some of these very same problems. And we might have idols that look a little bit different. Uh, we might have different idols that pop up in our lives. But I think idolatry is still alive and well. And I think that it's something that no matter who you are or how long you've been a Christian, you can end up falling into it. Because see, what Paul is dealing with in chapter 10 is a question that seems to have been asked to him. The second half of the book of, of 1 Corinthians seems to be a response to a letter that Paul received from the church at Corinth, and they're asking him about different issues. One of those issues might be, you know, uh, kind of some questions about fornication and marriage, and some of those questions might have to do with spiritual gifts, or maybe the resurrection, or, or some of those things. But right here, the question seems to center on, okay, I want to have a meal with my friends, and we want to gather around, and we want to eat uh, a, a good meal. Let's say that the meat, in order to buy it, you have to go to the marketplace. You go to the Agora, and there's all these places to buy meat. But in order to buy that meat, you have to go where they offered it up to, like, a pagan god. 
Like, if Walmart doesn't do that. You can go to Walmart, or you can go to a store, and you can go get meat, and you don't have to worry about, like, that it was offered up to some pagan deity of the gods of Maryville or something. Like, you can, you can just go there, because that's not really a part of our culture. But meat was scarce, in, uh, and if you're going to... Uh, to be able to purchase meat, basically, you're going to use it for multiple purposes, just like in Israel, by the way. Like, when they offered sacrifices to God, they didn't just offer those sacrifices, and then the meat was wasted. They usually would cook the meat as part of the sacrifice, and then people would eat it, and you would have a sacrificial meal with the priest and with the person offering, and, and with the part that gets burned up, you have God eating that part, and it's like this fellowship sacrificial meal between man and God, and, and there's, there's a union taking place there. Well, that's often what would happen in Corinth. When the meat was, was cooked, it would be cooked in a, a sacrificial way to, uh, to the gods uh, that, that they were worshiping. And so the question is, well, I don't believe in those gods, so can I still eat that meat? And there are a number of scenarios where this question could pop up. One, it could be um, you're hosting people at your house and serving meat. And uh, what should you do that? Should you offer and, and serve meat sacrificed to idols? Or you might be going to someone's house, and there's meat being served to you, and you don't know what the story behind this meat is. It, was this offered to idols, or was this not offered to idols? Or I don't really know what, uh, what the story is. And in that situation, Paul actually says, don't ask any questions about it. Just, just eat. <laughs> you know, don't, uh, don't, if, you, if they come out and they make like a presentation about like, this is offered to this God, well, then you probably shouldn't eat it, is what Paul would say. But don't try to, to find out the answer to that question. Uh, but then Paul becomes really emphatic about the idea that you shouldn't go to like a pagan temple and sit there and eat meat that's being sacrificed to idols. Uh, you should avoid those temples. And so, and so there's a lot of nuance here that we won't all get into, but the early part of his answer, it has a lot to do with love, and it has a lot to do with elevating love over knowledge. See, because some people might say, well, Look, I have, I've, I've been around the block for a while, uh, a few times, and I happen to know that I don't, I'm, by me eating this meat, I'm not worshiping an idol. I don't even believe in that idol. I don't believe in the God behind it. I'm just looking for a meal, and I, I'm perfectly convinced that I'm doing nothing wrong. And I think Paul could say, okay, like, I get that. But if you are then doing that and serving it to, say, there's a newer or a weaker Christian— who has really struggled with idolatry for a long time, and now they are being served this meat that's been offered to an idol, they might not be able to make that distinction. And so your, your knowledge might cause you to say, whatever, get over it, we can eat. But love for that person would cause you to say, you know what, we don't need to have it. Uh, if you really love the person, you might give up one of your rights of eating meat and, uh, and, and you know, just have a... <laughs> A vegetarian meal, uh, but but, uh, but have a meal that's that's not going to be as good. Uh, but uh, but he, I think what he's saying is be willing to make that sacrifice for your brother because you should elevate love for him over your personal knowledge of of. So so the first part of the answer is kind of about how you should respond to the the weaker. But when we get to chapter ten, I think he's also then going to say, and this is what I think is relevant for us. By the way, you people who are stronger, you people who have been Christians for a while, you people who have been successful and faithful in your adherence to the teachings of Jesus, perhaps you ought to be a little bit more cautious too 
when it comes to dabbling in idolatry, when it comes to going to these temples, when it comes to eating this meat. If you really think, oh, I'm fine, it's not a big deal for me, you probably ought to be careful. Because there are other people who have lived in such a way where they thought, this won't be a big problem for me. I've, I've, been, I've been faithful, I've avoided idolatry for a long time, and all of a sudden, they find themselves, without even realizing it, slipping right into it. And so I think when we get to chapter 10, it's a warning to those who perhaps may be becoming prideful in their Christianity. They think they stand, and Paul is going to say, take heed, because even you might fall. Um, and so we get to chapter 10, I think it's a valuable warning. It's a valuable warning to all Christians, whether you're a new Christian or whether you've been a Christian for a good long time, you still need to be cautious in the way that you live. You know, when it, when it comes to idolatry, I mentioned earlier that idols are the types of things, you know, we, most of us don't have like an actual golden image of a god in our house that we pray to at nighttime. If you do, stop it. Uh, but, uh, but, but most of us don't do that. But idolatry is the type of thing where we can, we can, without even realizing it, find ourselves developing an interest. And at first, it's a healthy interest. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a little bit more time-consuming. And then it becomes something you're passionate about. And then all of a sudden, it becomes something that you care more about than other important things in your life. And ultimately, it could be something that you care more about than anything else in your life. You can begin to equate it with even the devotion that you're supposed to have for God. You are now more frustrated or more passionate or more devoted to this other habit or this other hobby. And I, I genuinely think that it can change throughout your life what that is. You know, I'll say, you know, a personal example. When I was in high school, um, I cared more about playing football and being on the football team than pretty much anything else. Uh, like, I, 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 I like to think that, uh, that when it came to Christianity, like, I would, if given the choice, put right in front of me, all right, you're going to choose Jesus or football, I would say Jesus. I, I think I would do that. But if it came to what I actually thought about and, uh, you know, cared about more, like, when I wasn't being forced to make a choice, but just... In my day-to-day, -day, football was like everything to me, way more than school or other things. Like, I cared about that a lot. At this point in my life, I'm out of shape, and, like, football has, has become—the football team I like isn't very good. And so, like, football has really dwindled in its importance to me. But that doesn't mean other things haven't arisen in its place. It, you know, there are other things, and I think depending on who you are, depending on your history, you know, it might be, it might be sports, it might be politics. I think that happens to a lot of people. People who have been Christians for a long time, they can end up, I think, politics kind of sneaks in the back door and becomes a part of their Christianity. So that they think, well, these political views are like Christian doctrines that, and, and so like it all of a sudden, without even noticing, your politics and your Christianity get like mingled together into one, and you think that you're serving God by serving politics. That can happen. That happens a lot. In, in politics, I think, I think sometimes family. I think family is very good, but we could end up even putting our own families above God and even something that's a good blessing and gift from God, like children and like a spouse and, and like, like loved ones, could end up pulling you away from God. They can end up becoming what you're truly passionate about and devoted to. And even in that, we can find ourselves finding something good, but that's not God, to be our first priority in life. And so, you know, I, I don't know where you are, but if you think you stand, 
when it comes to idolatry. If you think, well, I'm in a good, healthy, safe spot. I know what I'm doing. I can guide this ship. I want to encourage you to take heed. Uh, I think that's what Paul is going to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It might, be, it might come at you from the blind side and you never thought it would happen to you, but all of a sudden you find yourself more devoted to other things than even the God that we, uh, that we claim to love. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is how Paul begins some of these warnings. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. A couple of interesting things about there. One is he says he's trying to uh, make sure that they're not unaware. He wants to give them uh, a knowledge, an understanding of something that's going to help them out. And he's going to do it by reading the Old Testament in a way that it applies very directly to their situation. I love reading the way that Paul uses the, uh, the Old Testament. He, he, I mean, he interweaves it in pretty much all of his teachings, and this is a really interesting way that he does it. But notice he, the family language of verse 1. He calls them brothers. So he wants them, this group of people, to all consider themselves to be family, to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to be united and related to one another. He uses strong familial language. But he not only does that for them with one another, he then uses the words that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's fascinating for a couple of reasons. One of them is that this is the church at Corinth. That's going to be primarily a Gentile church. And when he talks about our fathers, he's talking about the Jewish fathers who, who left uh, Egypt and went into the wilderness. And what he's doing is he's saying, you guys are a family with one another. But by virtue of being Christians, you are adopted and grafted into the family of Israel. So it's not just their story and your story. It's our story. We are Christians, primarily Gentile Christians, living on the other side of the world 2,000 years later. But when we are reading the story of Israel, when we're reading about the wilderness wanderings, we should see that as reading about our fathers. We are deeply connected to this story. We have a part in this story. Even as Gentiles, we've been grafted into this story so that it's not uh, some distant time and people long ago. It's actually our family. Our spiritual family went through this, and we need to be careful that we don't as well. So one way that Paul is able to um, connect the church at Corinth to the story of the wilderness wanderings is by using family language to say, you guys are all brothers with one another, and you have fathers who went through something. I want you to tell you about your fathers. That might not be something they were expecting to hear, but he considers the fathers of Israel to be their fathers as well. And he says that they were under the cloud, they were under the very presence of God, and they passed through the sea by God's divine power and, and, and miraculous uh, uh, providence. Then in verse 2, Notice some of the language he uses here. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You ever think of, uh, you ever think of the children of Israel as having been baptized? Paul sees baptism when he reads that story. He says they were baptized into Moses. They were baptized in the cloud. They were baptized in the sea. Why? Well, when they passed through the sea, it's like, it's like when you pass through the waters of baptism. And all of a sudden, he's going to start making really fascinating connections, saying, by the way, it's not just their fathers, it's your fathers. It's not just that you were baptized, 
you were both baptized. You're a lot like Israel. You were baptized and Israel was baptized. And then you get to verse 3 and 4, and he says, And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Well, you read through the story of, of Israel, and you have God providing food miraculously from the heavens, raining down upon them the manna that they had. In the spiritual drink they had, you can read, uh, and Moses uh, is able to strike a rock, and the water comes out, and they're able to drink this miraculous drink from God. So they're able to get food from God, the spiritual food, and drink from God. They're able to experience baptism and the presence of God in the cloud, and they're able to, to be part of the same family as these people. So if you're looking for ways to connect the church at Corinth to the church at, uh, or to uh, the, the children of Israel, he's saying, you're the same family. You've all been baptized. They had spiritual food and drink. By the way, what do you do every Sunday? You have spiritual food and drink. The church does that as well. When we take of the Lord's Supper, I think that's one of the ways that Paul is trying to unite them. We, we have the same spiritual food and drink. And then what he does in the rest of verse 4 is kind of mind-blowing, this connection that he makes. Verse 4, he says, For they were drinking from the spiritual rock. So that's, that's the reference to the rock with the water coming out. But notice what he says. The rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. That little... Uh, conclusion to that verse has been the subject of many, many, many papers and books and discussions because uh, uh, of a couple of things. One is he calls it the rock that was following them. And one thing that we know is that in Jewish tradition, that rock was uh, seen as kind of like a well. In fact, uh, in fact, there are some passages about a well uh, that, that Jewish rabbis would, would consider to be about that rock. And the idea of it is early on in Exodus— like when they first leave Egypt, Moses, uh, before they even get the Ten Commandments, like they're, they're going to Sinai, and that's when Moses at first strikes the rock, and, and the children of Israel are able to drink from it. And a long time later, in the book of Numbers, is when a second time Moses is supposed to speak to the rock, only that time instead of speaking to it, he strikes the rock again, and the water comes out, and they drink. Well, the thing is, they're in the wilderness for 40 years, and... There's not a lot of water in the wilderness. So what did they do in between those two times of having that rock? Well, the, the, the tradition of Israel is that that rock actually stayed with them. The rock followed them in the, in the wilderness. And it's the same rock that Moses spoke to both times. The rock was like a well of water that stuck with them. So I'm not saying you can see that in numbers, but I'm saying that is a part of Jewish tradition. And I think Moses is intentionally picking up on some of this Jewish tradition to say, by the way, and if you think that rock uh, where they drank that spiritual food was following them, well, who is the rock of Israel? You know, it's, it's, it's God. And, and so he ends up likening that rock to saying Christ himself was with them. Like he likens that rock to Christ and says that Christ was with them through the entire wilderness wanderings. So that's kind of a strange interpretive move that I don't know that we, we would ordinarily get by reading Exodus and Numbers. But Paul seems to be getting that, and he says that this rock was following, and that rock that stayed with them through these wanderings was Christ himself. So think about what that means. We're part of the same spiritual family. We've both, we've both been baptized. Um, we've both had this drink a spiritual food and, and drink a spiritual drink and eat a spiritual food. And we even both have Christ with us. Yet, and it's a big yet or nevertheless in verse 5. Yet with most of them, 
God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Remember I said this passage is kind of talking to Christians who are more mature. There might be Christians who are thinking, you know what? I've been, with, I've been baptized. I was baptized long ago. I take the Lord's Supper week in, week out. I'm faithful in my attendance. I gather together with the church. I have a spiritual family that I'm a part of. I'm an active part of the church. I have Christ in my life. And he's saying, yeah, you know, so do the children of Israel. There's a way of reading their story where you see all of that as part of their story also. And guess what happened? They didn't escape God's judgment. Even they who had the spiritual rock, which was Christ with them, who ate the spiritual food and, the, and, the spiritual, and drank the spiritual drink, who had been baptized, who were part of the spiritual family, even they were laid low in the wilderness. Why? Why is it that these people who should have been completely faithful, I mean, you, you can just read through the story. You can see that God delivered them from, from Egypt. God was there with them in the, in the presence. Like, you know, they, they often got mad at Moses' leadership, but it was not Moses leading the way, right? Moses was following just like they were. Moses was following that cloud. He was following the pillar of, the, the pillar of fire. It's like when they attacked Moses, God wants them to know, you know, you're actually attacking me. It's like God was with them through this. And so if you think that God is with you, I think you're right. That's wonderful. But don't take God being with you as reason to think, so therefore I'm good and I don't have to, I don't have to keep aware of my spiritual condition anymore. Paul is saying they still needed to be aware of their spiritual condition, and they weren't because you keep reading Verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Remember, he's talking about idolatry, and he's saying they died in the wilderness. Remember that generation. Like, the whole generation died out. Why? Because they craved evil things. They ended up falling into the trap of idolatry, and that's our example. Make sure that we, who have the spiritual food and drink, who have been baptized, who have Christ don't end up leaving that to crave evil things like they did. Make sure that we don't end up going the direction of idolatry. He gives a couple of examples of what they did. He kind of walks us through Exodus and Numbers in the next couple of verses. Verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters. Remember, that's what this whole question is about, this meat sacrificed to idols. He says, do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And you might think, eat and drink and still have to play. What in the world does that have to do with idolatry? Do you know where that quote, that's a quotation from the Old Testament. It comes from Exodus 32. That is the quotation of directly when the children of Israel are making the golden calf. While Moses is up on the mountain, it says they went to bed, they woke up, they ate and drank, and then they stood up to play. And that's the description of them uh, eating before this idolatrous idol and, and engaging in idolatry. Like that's, that's what's happening here. And he says, if you think you can go and eat and drink at that pagan temple, remember they ate and drank, and it ended up costing them dearly. Uh, and so the first example he gives is the golden calf. He, the only way, again, this is something I'll always encourage you to do. If you see a quotation in the New Testament from the Old Testament, go back and read the Old Testament story. Because if you just see those words, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, you could easily miss the connection to idolatry there. You could easily miss that that's 
from Exodus 32 and verse 6 about that golden calf that they made there in the wilderness. And uh, he's saying, he, like, that passage, that quote only makes sense if you go back and read the context and you know what's happening there in Exodus 32. Um, the next example he gives is in verse 8. He says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did when 23,000 fell in one day. That's from Numbers chapter 25, and I want to read uh, just a little bit of Numbers 25. This is, um, they're getting close actually to the promised land in Numbers 25. This is um, the sin of Peor. Numbers 25, I'll read the first three verses. Um, there's more that goes into it, but I'm just going to read these. Think of, think of anything that might be relevant to the situation at Corinth as I read these. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, and they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal at Peor, of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. So you know what happens? Israelites start sleeping with the women of Moab, and then they get invited to go to the, to the pagan sacrifices to go uh, offer worship to Baal and to go and eat there. All right. Makes sense that that's the, the example that Paul is going to use as he's talking about not going to the pagan temples in Corinth and eating and drinking, right? It specifically talks about them eating there. Uh, the next example he gives in chapter 10 and verse 9, he says, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. Uh, the story of the serpents is going to be from Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, and uh, in verse 5, this is when they are trying the Lord. It says, The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us uh, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. They're saying, we're tired of the food God is giving us. We want other food. Uh, again, most of these, when you go back and read them, there's some connection to eating and drinking, some connection to food. And what happens right in there, the next verse, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. It, it, what's fascinating is back in Exodus, like when the people complain about water the first time, they go to a pool of water and uh, it's, uh, it's bitter water. They can't drink it. So God miraculously has Moses throw a stick into it and it turns into good, pure drinking water and they drink it. And then the next chapter, uh, they're complaining about a lack of food and God rains down food from heaven for them and they eat and quail also. And then the next chapter, they complain about water again and God has water come from a rock. Right. Now, 40 years later, they're still making the same complaints, and so when they complain this time, fiery serpents come out. But, but I think the point is, grow, you know, start to trust God. He's giving you an awful lot. When you wake up every morning and your food has rained down from heaven, be thankful for that. Uh, don't keep complaining and say, you know, back in Egypt, we had, we had all that we could eat. Our pots overflowed. I'm like, I doubt it, okay? I, Egypt wasn't that great for you. But that's what can happen. The wilderness can, it can warp your understanding of reality so that even the misery of Egypt looks more desirable than what God is giving you. By the way, that's what idolatry can do. You could have blessings from God. You could have um, a faithful Christian family. You could have been baptized. You could eat the spiritual food and drink the spiritual drink and all of a sudden start looking around you and thinking, you know, things might be better elsewhere. Maybe things were better if I, served, uh, if I served wealth. Maybe then I would find true happiness. Maybe things would be better if I served uh, the gods of sex. 
then I'd find true pleasure. Maybe things would be better if I, and all of a sudden we come up with these other gods that we can serve, and we end up thinking that true peace can be found there. And it's just like the children of Israel in the wilderness, looking back to the slavery of Egypt and thinking that's where they'll find true meaning. That's where they'll find true happiness to the slavery that they once had been in. So then uh, Paul continues, chapter 10 and verse 10. He says, uh, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And we're not, there's so many places where they grumbled, it's hard to know exactly which instance that is. That might be Numbers 14, uh, when the spies went out and they saw the land, and they saw how fruitful and amazing it was, and and 10 of them came back saying, we can't take it. And then the children of Israel uh, started to doubt and complain and grumble about going back to Egypt. Uh, That's one possible example, but notice in each of these, These are people who had the presence of God with them. They had all of these connections to the church at Corinth, and yet they ended up abandoning God, and they died in the wilderness. Here's what I think Paul is saying. It's in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think what he's saying is you... You guys, in a lot of ways, are like them, and you have some decisions to make. You can either fall into the same traps that they fell into, traps of idolatry, thinking, oh, we have a good relationship with God. You know, he brought us out of Egypt. They could think, we have a good relationship with God. We gather together. We take the Lord's Supper. On Tuesday night, I can go to the pagan temple. It's not a big deal. And he's saying, you might think that that's the case, but you need to be careful. Even you who are mature, who have been faithful, could end up falling. I think on the one hand, you have Paul, and, and I think this is something that uh, perhaps we should, we should take into consideration. If you have an understanding of your relationship with God, and a lot of people in the Christian world do, by the way, that it is impossible for you to fall, I think Paul is saying you need to change that right now. Um, if you think it's not even possible for you to fall, you are, on, you are in dangerous territory. It's a very dangerous thing to believe. And so remove that idea from your head right now. Even if you've been a faithful and committed Christian, even if you have been baptized, even if you have Christ, you can fall just like they did. So be careful. The second thing I think he's saying is if you're so prideful as to think that you're so good at Christianity that you never will, you need to be careful with that idea also. Sin can creep in unexpected from unseen places, and all of a sudden you can find yourself entangled in it in ways that you never thought possible. Things that were once innocent can become priorities in your life that end up pulling you and in, in diverting your mission and diverting you from the race that God has before you. Temptation is strong and powerful, and it can get any one of us, but it doesn't have to. God is with you, and the children of Israel did not have to fall in the wilderness. The church at Corinth, they don't have to fall into idolatry. And we, in our lives as Christians, we don't have to fall away. In fact, I think that, I think that uh, the grace of God is astoundingly powerful. I think that God's grace is more than sufficient. We have everything that we need to be faithful. And we have a God who looks at us and loves us and cares for us. So I think verse 13, then Paul uses to remind them, but you're not in this alone. Like, you don't have to do this on your own. You have some powerful resources at your disposal. God is a very powerful friend to have when you find yourself facing temptation. So verse 13, Paul says, but no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. 
It's like, whether you're the children of Israel or whether you're a modern Greek in Corinth, guess what? You, you are suffering the same, experiencing the same temptations they did. Like, he just made this connection to show that these two very different groups of people are going through the same things. And I think we could say we do as well. So the temptations you're facing, they're not unique necessarily to you. These are, idolatry is the basic, pride and idolatry are the basic temptations that affect all mankind. And so what he's saying is you're not facing a temptation uh, that isn't common, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. You might not always be able to escape temptation, but with temptation, you can escape the results of that. You can escape the sin. You can escape so powerful a temptation that it can overwhelm you. The children of Israel could have chosen a different route. The church at Corinth, I think he's going to tell them a different route to go. And that route is summed up succinctly in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Look, if, you, if you're thinking, okay, I can overcome temptation. Let me just go to the pagan temple where all my temptation is and, uh, and then uh, get the meat and then I'll try to figure it out. I think what he's saying is that's a really foolish way to do it. If you want to overcome the temptation, flee from it. Okay, don't go to the temple of the pagan god and decide there that you're going to try to be faithful. Don't wait till you're alone with, uh, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend in the house with the lights off when you start thinking, huh, how far is too far? Like, that's not the time to start making those decisions. Uh, don't wait until you're already uh, you know, at the party and there's the drinks and the drugs and all that stuff and you're trying to think, should I do this or not? I think what he's saying is make your mind up about where temptation is and flee from that before you get there. You could find yourself in a situation where uh, sin becomes way too difficult to leave, but that's not because God didn't provide a way of escape. Get out and go. Sometimes that's the way of escape. Sometimes it's not anything clever at all. Sometimes it's not uh, the... the Sometimes I think when we think God made a way of escape and we try to think of what that secret passage could be. And sometimes it's not a secret passage. It is just flee. Uh, that's the same language that he uses earlier in chapter six, by the way, when talking about sexual immorality. He says flee from fornication. Sometimes just, you know, that whole Joseph turning around and running out of the room with Potiphar's wife. That's what you do. You turn around and, and you run and that's the way of escape. And if you think, well, I'm too mature of a Christian to do that, well, then take heed lest you fall. If you struggle with internet pornography, getting on the computer alone by yourself at nighttime when your family's asleep isn't a wise decision for you. You think, well, I'll be good this time. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Um, sometimes the thing to do is just to flee, to escape, to admit I'm too weak for this and I need to get out of there. And I think that's what Paul is saying they ought to do when it comes to idolatry. Sometimes admitting your weakness is really, really helpful. Know your strengths, but also know your weaknesses. And when the areas of your weakness, you turn and flee. In the areas that you think you're strong, be cautious with those two. They might creep up on you. So I think there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in here for the lifelong journey of Christianity. Uh, there are going to be potholes and rocks and bumps and stumbles all along the way. And I think passages like this are reminders that even the most faithful guy in the world needs to be cautious. 
Uh, I'll conclude by reading the verses right before this passage starts. It's about Paul himself. He says in uh, chapter 9, in verse 26, talking about his own journey, he says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I think Paul's saying, I have to work on myself daily because I potentially have the risk of spending so much time focused on others that I neglect my own spiritual well-being and even I can become disqualified. If Paul is having that thought and it's actually the introduction to the passage that we just read, then I think each and every one of us in here can as well. Maybe we need to work on ourselves, uh, work on our bodies, make it our slave, escape and flee from temptation, and uh, maybe that's the best path forward for us. Uh, If there's anyone here tonight, when you look at your life, you realize there is temptation. You've been giving into it an awful lot, and maybe you're not where you think you should be. Maybe sin has become a part of your life that you carry around with you daily. We, as a body of believers, as your brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of the spiritual family, who have all been baptized, who have the spiritual food and the spiritual drink and have the presence of Christ among us, we want to help you and love you and pray for you and encourage you through that. The hardest thing you can do is try to defeat it on your own. So we want to, uh, to ask, make it known. We will help encourage and pray for you. And if there's anyone here who wants to become a Christian tonight, you have that opportunity as well. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism, and live for him from this day forward. If you have the need, please let it be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.